History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 399th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I'm your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, on this episode, we are bringing people a location that looks like it's pronounced Corner's Folly, but it's actually Kerner's Folly. And this is a very unique house, which some people liken to the Winchester Mystery House because it's kind of got some weird building going on in there. Oh, interesting. And there's a few haunts as well. We'll be talking about that in just a moment. But before that, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Christy, who spells her name with a C-H and an I at the end. Anne, Melissa, Tanya, Julie, Joshua, and another Diane, but she spells her name with a Y instead of an I. Very cool. And thank you for joining us in the Spooktacular crew. And now, this moment, Naughty. The moment in oddity was suggested by Jenny Lynn Rains. The tomb of Titus Carvilius Gemello was discovered near Rome at the Grotta Ferrata Necropolis in 2000. This tomb is known as Hypogeum of Garlands and is the final resting place of Gemello, who died young at the age of 18. This discovery revealed a number of things, one of which was that the Romans embalmed bodies, so this was one of the few Roman mummies. Another thing was that the Romans knew about microorganisms and did things with their burial practices to help with preservation. They had corporeal leakage drains under the body, air ventilation, and a filtering cloth system to prevent necrophagous bacteria, spores, and keep out moisture. But the most amazing discovery was a ring that was inside the tomb. Titus's mother was devastated when he died, and she ordered the expensive marble sarcophagus in which he was buried. And then she had the ring made. It features a bust likeness of her son that is a gold microfusion on a wax model done via a technique called a Sarah Persa. Then a polished clear quartz crystal was set on top of this, giving the bust likeness a hologram effect. It's really quite creepy. His mother wore the ring on occasion, but mostly locked it away so as not to spoil it. She died a few years later at the age of 40 and was buried next to her son, and the ring was placed in the tomb. A ring dating back to the Roman Empire that has a unique hologram effect certainly is odd. Hey there, this is Diane. And this is Kelly from the History Goes Bump podcast. You have the chance of a lifetime to join us for a ghost hunt and a live show. And we're going to be doing it with one of your other favorite podcasts, Hillbilly Horror Stories. September 17th and 18th, we'll be doing a ghost hunt at the St. Augustine Lighthouse 
We'll have a couple of special guests joining us as well for that. And on Saturday the 18th, we'll be having a live show. And during that live event, Kelly, we're going to be sharing about some Victorian houses that are haunted here in Central Florida. Looking forward to it. There'll be a meet and greet, a Q&A. It's going to be a great time. You do not want to miss this. For more information, go to historyghostbump.com and click on the St. Augustine Hunt tab. and You'll find out how you can get tickets to both. Better do it soon, though. There's very few tickets left. See you there. And now, this month in history. In the month of August on the 18th in 1590, the Roanoke Colony is found deserted. John White was the governor of the Roanoke Island Colony, and he had left for England on a supply run, but was delayed by the war with Spain. He had led the second group of colonists to settle at the colony. An earlier group didn't fare well and ended up returning to England. White brought this group in 1587. What the group didn't know at the time was that they were arriving at the start of a two-year drought. There were 100 people in this second group, and when White returned, everyone had disappeared including his daughter and his granddaughter, who was the first English baby born in America. White and his men searched as much as they could, but the only clue as to what happened was the word Croatoan carved into the palisade around the settlement. They thought perhaps this meant the colonists went to Roanoke Island, but no one was there. Most historians believe that the colonists were facing starvation and a lack of water, and that the nearby Croatans took them in and absorbed them into their tribe. The house that is nicknamed Kerner's Folly is also thought to be one of the strangest houses in America. This is a large mansion with 22 rooms that was built in a whimsical way, leaving some people scratching their heads in a similar way as the Winchester Mystery House. Jewel Kerner was a creative genius who wanted this house to be a visual experience, and the house was under renovation most of the time to make room for new design ideas. Today, it's not only a museum, but the mysterious house harbors spirits. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of Kerner's Folly. The first person to settle Kernersville was an Irishman named Caleb Story. He was given a land grant of 400 acres by the Royal Colony of Carolina. Eventually, this acreage would make its way into the hands of another Irishman named William Dobson, and he would buy more tracts until there was over 1,100 acres. He would build Dobson's Tavern, where President George Washington stopped in to have breakfast in 1791. It's like one of those things they, you know, tack up on the wall. George Washington was here. (laughs) Of course. Come visit our restaurant. Kernersville would get its name from Joseph Kerner, who bought the land in 1817. And people started calling it Kerner's Crossroads. A village developed before the American Civil War. And in 1871, it was incorporated as Kernersville. This town is considered the heart of the triad in North Carolina. Julius Kerner would be born here and build his mansion here eventually. And I have no idea when Corner, which is K-O-R-N-E-R, got switched to Kerner to become Kernersville. 
I have a feeling they were like, well, we want to spell it like how people should say it. So they just spelled it like it sounds. Sure. Julius Gilmer Kerner was born in 1851 in Kernersville, North Carolina, a town his grandfather settled when he immigrated in 1785 from the Black Forest region of what would become Germany. The family would own 1,000 acres in Kernersville. The family owned slaves, and when Jules' mother passed away, when he was two years old, one of their slaves named Clara, that the family called Aunt Dealey, raised him. She came by that nickname because she called the Kerner children Deary, and one of them tried to call her the same, but had a hard time saying it, and Deary usually came out as Dealey. <laughs> so they all started calling her Aunt Dealey. Jewel was her favorite, and she spoiled him, and he considered her his second mother. She had been bought by the family after her original owner had died. Clara's family was facing separation at auction, and her mother, Charity, quietly asked the community of Kernersville to buy her three daughters so they wouldn't be sold further south and separated. Some Quakers bought Clara's sister, Mary, and sent her north to freedom. No one knows what became of Clara's sister, Elsie, but Charity unfortunately was taken by traders further south, and Clara would never see her mother again. Jewel went to Kernersville Academy and then attended a Quaker school in Indiana. He loved all forms of the arts and would carry this into his life and eventually the home he would build. He studied under J.E. Bundy, the noted artist and Civil War photographer. In 1869, he returned to his hometown and moved in with his brother Joseph, where the two bachelors lived with Aunt Dealey. Kernersville had a chance for real growth in 1871 when the Western North Carolina Railroad was looking to expand. But they weren't sure about this smaller town. That was until the citizens decided to build a four-mile section of track that would bring the railroad through town. The Kerner family got in on the action, and Joseph went to work for the railroad, and he assigned Jewel to supervise a group of 30 men set aside to build that section of track. Can you imagine, instead of just petitioning the railroad, hey, you want to bring it here? You just build the track and go, well, now you really kind of should, because here's the <laughs> You've track. you do it. <laughs> Once that was done, Jewel went to Philadelphia, where he studied design and interior decorating and served as apprentice to Charles Fisher. When his father passed away in 1875, Jewel returned to Kernersville and started a sign painting business. This area of North Carolina was becoming home to the tobacco barons. Blackwell's Bull Durham Tobacco Company in Durham, North Carolina, hired Kerner to do their marketing under his company that he had named Reuben Rink Decorating and House Furnishing Company. Reuben Rink was his brush name or pen name, if you will. First, I didn't realize that instead of pen name, artists sometimes had a name that was their brush name. I had no idea either. And I have no idea where he got Reuben Rink. <laughs> what a name. <laughs> that, that's quite a moniker. Especially if you think that they're a German family. I mean, obviously, he was born here in America, but he comes down from German. So it's like Reuben Rink. That sounds really German to me. I'm thinking Being a little sarcastic. Yeah, there's not a lot of Reuben <laughs> Rinks in Germany, I imagine. At this same time in 1877, Kerner started designing his future home. Construction on Kerner's Folly began in 1878, and not only was his home, but also his studio and office. A farmer walking by one day noticed how haphazard the different stories appeared to be, and he declared, Surely this will be Jewel Kerner's Folly. The name stuck. The construction was said to be completed in 1880, but that was never really finished as Kerner made this a place to showcase his design work for clients, much like an in-person catalog. I'm sure his wife, who's going to come up here in the future, was just thrilled with that. <laughs> Describing the architectural style of, of Jewel Kerner's former home is difficult. 
The windows are long and narrow, framed by arching shutters, and no two are exactly alike. The same is true for the doorways. No two are alike. The exterior is brick, but even that is weird because there are eight different sizes of bricks. The roof rises in A-frame peaks on each side. A really odd thing is that the house appears to be three stories tall, but once inside, one finds there are seven levels. There are 22 rooms of various sizes, from little nooks to medium-sized bedrooms to a grand reception room, and several of them have fireplaces. There are 15 fireplaces in total, none of which were ever used, and each had a unique design. Yeah, it's hard for me to tell. When I was looking at pictures of the house, it looked like there were six chimneys. Usually you would assume that there would be six fireplaces. Sometimes they would double stack them. So maybe depending upon the floor, you can get to 12. But I'm like, I don't know if all of these fireplaces actually have a chimney leading anywhere either, which makes it a good (laughs) thing that they didn't use these fireplaces. But I can't imagine building all these fireplaces you're not going to use unless it's just strictly for the design element, which obviously that's what he does. So maybe he built all these different fireplaces so he could take people in and say, Would you like a fireplace like this one? Or in this room, we have this one? Or That's exactly what I'm imagining. Just because even with the windows, they're all different. Every Mm -hmm. single door is different. It had to be that he was experimenting with different styles and looks so he could potentially sell a certain look to a client. To see how does this, how's this going to turn out? But again, as his wife, I'd be like, "Um, can we have some stuff that kind of looks normal? Or maybe she was just as... Eccentric as him. That's what I would. That's the word I would use. (laughs) Some of the ceilings rise to six feet and others to 25 feet in height. The house has a unique air distribution system with pivoting windows and interior openings. When you look at the outside of it, because I honestly I didn't know how to describe the architectural style because looking at it, I was like, I don't know what this is. (laughs) It's not Gothic. It's not Renaissance. It's I don't know what it is. It's a hodgepodge. Yeah. And it's just weird to see these A-frames on all sides of the house like it is. And they're like big. It's not just little peaks at the top. Aunt Dealey moved into Jewel's house with him, even though she owned her own property that had been gifted to her by Jewel's father. That's how much they considered her a part of the family. I love that. I mean, at this point, we're after the Civil War. So she's got to be a free woman of color. And for her to own property. Right. That's amazing at that time. And then she was really smart about it. She rented the property to make her own money. So she had the old house from Jules' father or whatever, but she decided to move into Jules' house with him and make money off of that one. In 1885, Jules built a cottage in the back for her. That cottage still remains on the property, and Clara lived there until her death in 1896 at the age of 76. Jules wanted her buried in the Moravian Church graveyard, but segregation prevented that. So Jewel said, okay, you're not going to let this woman that I consider to be my second mother be buried in the area where we would want to be buried because I'm sure he was planning their burial there. So he said, well, screw you. He purchased the land next to the cemetery and made it a private Kerner family plot. And that's where he buried his Aunt Dealey. Excellent. He engraved her headstone with Clara Kerner, honest and faithful to every trust by the loss of our mother at an early age. She assumed the special care and training of We the Children of Philip Kerner, for which we all place this stone to her memory. Six years after Kerner's folly was completed, Jewel married Polly Alice Maston of Winston, who went by Alice. And of course, that completed is in quotation marks because it never was completed. The couple courted for five years before marrying, and it was mostly long distance. 
they shared a love of the arts. Unfortunately, Alice contracted typhoid fever shortly after they wed, and she would spend the rest of her life in ill health. She and Jewel would have a son and a daughter, Jewel Gilmer Kerner Jr., who went by Gilmer, and Allie Dory Kerner, who went by Dory. In 1894, the Kerners co-founded the Kernersville Orchestra, and then Alice created the Juvenile Lyceum, a drama club for kids. The first meeting of the club took place at Kerner's Folly, and the group would produce plays and perform them in the long room of the house for two years. Alice wrote and directed the plays and made the costumes, too. In 1897, Jewel designed and built Cupid's Park Theater for Alice on the top floor of the house. The plays were performed from there, and this came to be known as the first private little theater in America. So she put up with his eccentricities, and then he built her a theater. (laughs) I thought that was kind of cool. You can imagine they're nice putting on plays up there. I don't know how many people came to see the plays. and a little trade-off. Yeah. Julian Carr, who was a tobacco baron and head of the Bull Durham Tobacco Company, gave Jewel more responsibility and an unlimited expense account. He also hired the artist to paint frescoes on the ceilings of his mansion known as Somerset Villa. On a side note, this place is reputedly haunted by a female ghost that is claimed to be the former lady of the house. Legend claims her son drowned in an irrigation canal and that she still mourns him by crying and screaming. Anonymous wrote in June of 2021, When I was a middle school student, me and my Boy Scout troop stayed the night there camping. Me and some buddies went out walking late one night down a trail near where the slave houses once were. We experienced a sudden scream or shrieking, and it seemed to be all around us. And then it seemed to turn into the wind and went through the trees all around us again. We all took off running, and lucky it was the last night there for us. We never went back, and most of us to this day don't like speaking about it. Don't know what it was, but it sure wasn't normal. Animals and no breeze except that sudden blast of wind. I thought that was kind of weird that you just get the sudden blast of wind. The cars had three sons who lived into their later years beyond 40s, so we're not really sure how true this legend may be, but clearly this person heard something pretty creepy because I was trying to figure out which one of their sons would be the one and see if it was a true story that he had drowned in an irrigation canal, but I found nothing about that. Gotcha. So when they say the former lady of the house, I don't know if they're talking about Mrs. Carr or some later owner or something, or this is, of course, maybe just an urban legend. But the frescoes on the ceiling in that house were painted by Jewel. Jewel was hired by other properties to paint frescoes in their homes, too. He continued to work for Durham Tobacco until it relocated to New York in 1888. He was not about to leave North Carolina and said of his decision, Better is one's own path, though imperfect, than the path of another well made. That decision would be a good one as his company prospered and landed even bigger projects. In 1892, he renovated and decorated the Kernsville Moravian Church. Jewel passed away in 1924 at the age of 74. Alice would follow him in death 10 years later. The Kerner children were homeschooled and taught art and how to play the piano and violin. They participated in the plays their mother directed and adopted an abandoned raccoon cub they named Bob. Wait, Kelly, uh, I cannot believe you didn't just lose it. What? A raccoon named Bob? He's you don't gotta have to be named something. But don't you have something to say about that? I mean, a <laughs> raccoon named Bob? Well, my horse trainer back in the day when I used to show had a dog named Sean. Really? I thought that was more weird. <laughs> <laughs> I just can't imagine naming a raccoon Bob. <laughs> Little trash panda. Yeah. Gilmer went on to serve in the military and become a lawyer. Once he left Kernersville, he never returned. He collected artwork, which is on display at Kerner's Folly. Dory went on to college and then traveled through Europe. She married in 1916 and had two children. 
Her family would use Kerner's Folly as a summer home, and they eventually rented it out. It sat abandoned for a time, and then a group of people in Kernersville formed the Kerner's Folly Foundation and bought the property in 1970. Major restoration would take many years to start. It wasn't until 2012 that the real work would begin with the foundation being repaired, the roof was replaced, and the three porches were restored. Much of the interior is done, but there are several rooms that still need work. The foundation wants to restore the house to its 1890-1915 appearance. 90% of the furnishings in the museum house are original. Can you believe that? Wow, that's pretty amazing. That's amazing. Now, one of the reasons why is because another one of these quirks of Jewel was that he liked to build furniture. And so a lot of the furniture is like built into the house. So you couldn't move it or take it out. Ah, gotcha. And perhaps some of the spirits here are original to the house as well. Groups who have investigated the house think there are three ghosts here, a man, a woman, and a child. The hauntings are both intelligent and residual. A woman who cleaned the house when it was vacant claimed that she heard footsteps coming down the staircase. She was unnerved, thinking someone had broken into the vacant house. But after looking all around, she found that she was indeed alone, at least by anybody she could see. Winston-Salem Paranormal Society investigated the house in October 2011 and had a reporter, Veronica White, from WXII 12 News join them. They started in the mini-theater upstairs where an apparition had been seen previously. Two flashlights that they had set up near the stage responded to requests to turn on and off as the video rolled. The master bedroom gave them the most evidence over the course of the evening. Veronica asked if there was more than one person with them to turn off the flashlight, and it went off. She then asked for the flashlight to be turned on if there was a female with them, and the light clicked on. One of the flashlights rolled off the desk later, and there was no explanation for that since the desk appeared to be level. One of the camera's batteries completely drained in the bedroom as well. The children's playroom also had activity, and they caught an EVP saying, Turn, after one of the investigators said, You can turn the light out. Everyone felt the atmosphere was friendly. It was cute because this is one of those things, October of 2011, of course, the local news station went to a haunted location. And this Veronica was really unnerved. She felt like she didn't really want to go back there again. Most of the activity was the flashlight turning on and off. And it was so funny as I'm watching the clips from this, when that flashlight rolled off the desk, she said that the battery in the camera that they had over on the one side had gone out. So they said you didn't catch it like for what the news was rolling. But they must have had another camera somewhere else that was off to the side. And it looked like it was infrared because you couldn't really see the people really well. But it was mostly women who were doing this investigation. And they all screamed and (laughs) went crazy when that flashlight came off the desk. Like, I don't know. It was almost as if they actually saw a real ghost the way they were screaming. I was like, okay. I mean, I guess I'd be a little unnerved if all of a sudden the flashlight hit the floor. Well, maybe, I mean, was there a bang or anything when it fell? Did it just surprise them? They didn't see it falling? I think it just kind of surprised them. Gotcha. It wasn't like a loud bang. It was kind of like when I was sitting there on the chair and all of a sudden I heard, tink, and I was like, what was that? And I looked up and the flashlight had rolled across the mantle in the John Denham house. You just didn't tell anybody that you actually screamed just like them. Shush, Kelly, don't tell people that. Oh, it's your little secret. (laughs) The Little Cupid's Park Theater has been used by the Kernersville Community Theater for rehearsals, and several actors have claimed to see the lights turn themselves back on after they've been switched off. This, of course, is usually after they've left the house and turned off the lights, turn back around and see all the lights ablaze again. Then someone has to walk up the seven flights of stairs to turn them back off, only to have the same thing repeat itself after they exit once again. So somebody's pulling some pranks up there. A guy working on the air conditioning on that level also had an experience. 
he was tapped three times on the brim of his hat. It scared him enough that he left his tools and never returned. A male paranormal investigator had a similar experience, only it was his shoulder that was tapped three times while he stood on the stage. And he didn't know anything about this previous experience this guy had had. So apparently something likes to knock three times on something. (laughs) Oh my. (laughs) When the temperature was measured around him, there was a 10 degree difference. So there's a little side evidence there to kind of back up his claim. The apparition of a little girl has been seen several times at the house. A local resident claims to have seen her several times standing on the front porch at night. Others have seen a little girl ghost on the stage in the theater. And the giggling of a little girl has also been heard. Diana Kelly Syed was the house's paranormal advisor, and she worked with Haunted North Carolina. And she joined an investigation in 2009 conducted by Spars Paranormal and wrote, One of the most distinctive EVP samples captured was in the children's playroom of a little girl saying peekaboo. That's pretty cool. I'd be excited. <laughs> and clearly this is the children's playroom. So the little girl, I wonder if it's the same one, if she Could doesn't be. just hang out in the theater, she hangs out in the playroom too. Yep. Interestingly, two digital audio devices shut off just before the only working device caught the EVP. Likewise, a light anomaly was recorded on IR cameras in the area at that same time. I have personally obtained EVP in the middle of the day and in numerous locations throughout the house. One was caught in the children's playroom and coincided with an EMF spike and one digital audio device failure. The working audio device recorded a male voice saying, Haunted. This was in response to me jokingly requesting for new evidence to present at an upcoming public lecture. Deanna also shared another interesting EVP that was captured during that early investigation. They had just turned on a recorder and the investigators were saying to each other that they hoped they caught some EVP. And when they played back the tape, right after that is a soft voice asking, what is EVP? I love that when the ghosts are like, you want me to do what? What? I I, I can't help you with that. I don't know what it is. That's pretty cool. Yeah. The Grand Reception Room has also had activity. The Haunted North Carolina investigators were conducting a hunt in April of 2010. They had set up an EMF meter in the room and started an experiment that worked great. They asked the spirits to spike the meter a certain number of times and the spirits obliged. So when they asked for it to spike five times, it spiked five times. During the time when the house was rented out, it served as both an antique store and a funeral parlor. Employees of the antique store would arrive in the morning to find the furniture all rearranged. Volunteers have never had the furniture rearranged for them, but maybe that's because 90% of the furnishings belong to the Kerners, so they're happy with the setup. Maybe at the antique store, they're like, what is this crap? (laughs) It could be. There was a separate room for smoking, and often cigar smoke is smelled in there. But this sometimes happens throughout the house, so apparently... A ghost is walking around smoking. Perhaps. And it's not just cigar smoke, Kelly. There is cigarette smoke, too, because apparently Alice was a closet smoker and perhaps is still carrying that on in the afterlife. Oh, my. Did she think her husband couldn't smell the cigarettes? I guess, perhaps. And was it okay for him to smoke cigars, but not her cigarettes? Michael Renegar and Amy Spies wrote Ghosts of the Triad, Tales from the Haunted Heart of the Piedmont. And in that, Michael shares that he was interviewing Diana for the book. He asked her how many spirits were thought to be in the house, and they both audibly heard someone else answer five. The only other people in the house were upstairs, and the voice had not come from there. Amy is a medium, and she felt that the house was warm and friendly. She described the house as a welcoming embrace. And I find it interesting that investigators say there's three here, but apparently the ghosts disagree, and they probably know better because they're telling them five. 
So I would say there's probably five spirits in this house. Yeah, I would imagine so. I'll I'll take their I'll take their word on it. And I always think it's cool when you hear something audibly. Absolutely. And it was two people who heard it audibly. Yeah, very cool. Kerner's Folly is open year-round, and they offer guided tours by appointment, or you can just pop in Thursday through Saturday and wander around by yourself. Perhaps you will have your own experience to share. Is Kerner's Folly haunted? That is for for you you to decide. decide. So if we're ever in this area of North Carolina, we'll have to check it out. Absolutely. We'd love to have you guys check out our website at historygoesbump.com and you can send us any feedback at historygoesbump at gmail.com. You can also send your flash fiction. We'll be doing that on our anniversary show coming up on October 1st, 2021. The deadline for your submission is September 6th, 2021, midnight Eastern time, word limit 1,000. And it needs to be creepy, scary, some kind of a ghost story, something you wouldn't mind your teenagers listening to. We will have three winners who will get medals and some gear. And we'll also be reading some runner-ups. So excited. Yeah, we just keep getting more and more in. I think we're up to 10 or 11 now. So awesome. We're going to have a great show for that. I want to thank you guys for tuning into this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We want to welcome into the cemetery, Caitlin Giddings. We're going to be burying you under a marble headstone. Thank you so much for supporting History Goes Bump. We could not do this show without our Patreons. You can find History Goes Bump on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, Google Play, and anywhere you can listen to podcasts. tours for the (laughs) for the freedom of the mind (laughs) going back to your freedom swings days i guess (laughs) ghost tours for the leaving some people scratching their heads in a similar way as the man as the manchester (laughs) i don't know how you got manchester out of winchester (laughs) but okay kelly you go ahead make up places I wonder if the Manchester Mystery House is where Melissa Manchester lived. <laughs> Perhaps. Smart Alec. Maybe she had a little concert hall Enough in there. Enough comments from the peanut gallery. Stairs going all different directions. And, and she ordered the expensive Marf... Marfle? It was a Marfle <laughs> sarcophagus. And the house was under renov- renovation. <laughs> Here reno- we go. Renovations. Is that like... Taking a, long- a reservation and doing renovations at the same Ugh, time. Don't talk about reservations. I work enough during the week. <laughs> the name struck. The, the name struck.
Yes, the name struck. It just Accord? it hit the house, <laughs> and it was like bam. They had to call it that because the name struck the house, Kelly. <laughs> Apparently, Kiwi is having a conversation with someone we can't see and really going off. Is it better if you close it all the way? Kiwi! He doesn't care. <laughs> and adopted an abandoned raccoon club. A raccoon club? <laughs> <laughs> There was a separate room for smoking, and often cigar smell is smoke- smoked in here. <laughs> cigar smell is smoked. <laughs> <laughs> Woohoo! That sounds fabulous. <laughs>